0: So last week, I got to make sure I say this correctly every time, last week we finished the three series of oracles that contained 15 total oracles spread out over 15 chapters. Today, we are going to look at eight chapters that have six woes. And yes, we will be looking at all eight chapters today. The content of all of these 23 chapters, 15 chapters of oracles and now eight chapters of woes, the content of all of these 23 chapters boils down to one simple repeated message, trust God. So what I want to do today first, before we begin into now the woes, as we've just finished the oracles, I want to address the elephant in the room. Why all of the repetition? Why 23 chapters that are all saying the same message? First, and I've mentioned this a couple times, we have to remember that what we are reading is a condensed version of Isaiah's decades of ministry, pleading with the people and the leaders and the kings to trust God rather than trusting military alliances, their own resources or cunning or plans or whatever it is in this current situation that he's currently talking to. He did this for decades, giving the same exact message. Second, And to better understand why Isaiah specifically has to keep giving this message to Hezekiah, who is the one that I've mentioned multiple times, is the king during most of Isaiah's messages. Ahaz was the first few chapters, and now Hezekiah, by and large, is most of the rest of the content we've been dealing with. So to better understand why he has to keep giving this message, especially to Hezekiah, we should understand some of Hezekiah's history a little bit more. Remember that Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz— had pledged his loyalty to Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, and paid them to help him when the northern tribes of Israel and Syria had threatened to force Judah into an alliance against the Assyrian Empire that Ahaz didn't want to enter. He then goes and pays the Assyrian Empire and says, I'm pledging my loyalty to you. In fact, he took money from God's temple and gave it to the Assyrian Empire, basically saying, I trust you and your gods more than my God. So that was Hezekiah's father. That was Ahaz. Well, Ahaz did that, and then when Assyria did help him, did help Ahaz, and Assyria came and conquered the northern tribes, that brought the Assyrian empire a little bit closer to home than a lot of the leaders of Judah and Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, were comfortable with. So what happens then is that during the last few years of Ahaz's reign, when he is isolated due to his skin disease that he had been cursed with because of his pride, Ahaz And Hezekiah are co-ruling. And during this time, Hezekiah is already working with the leaders and agreeing with them that he isn't a fan of how close the Assyrian Empire is. So he is not the same as his father. Ahaz sided with the Assyrian Empire. And now Hezekiah is starting to lean more the other way. So then in about 716, 715 or so, when Ahaz dies and Hezekiah is now ruling on his own, he begins to actively seek out alliances against the Assyrian Empire because now his father's out of the way who had been a a fan of being in alliance with the Assyrian Empire so now he's switching um, his foreign policy and switching over to actually seeking alliances against them and seeking to rebel against Assyria. Hezekiah did make many spiritual reforms in fact if you read through the books of kings and chronicles there is a longer section for hezekiah than for most other kings except for maybe um, ahab who has a long section for the opposite reason because he did a lot of bad things Um, but hezekiah has a long section for a lot of good things that he did so by and large he was commended by god but this specifically was his area of struggle foreign policy so it is why Isaiah has to keep giving him the same message over and over and over again. This was Hezekiah's, if you will, Achilles heel. This was his temptation that he constantly had to struggle with. And honestly, the advice that he was getting from the leaders and the other false prophets who were constantly just telling him what he wanted to hear. And that Isaiah mentions multiple times he's fighting against the message of these false prophets. And then the third and the final thing we need to remember is that most of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, was written either to be heard, or it is a writing of something that was originally heard. So like in Isaiah, he spoke all these things and then later compiled them. So it is a writing of stuff that is spoken. And then even if it isn't a writing of something that was spoken originally, it is a writing intended to be spoken. Because we have to remember that in this day and age, most people did not have a Bible or a phone or whatever in front of them. There were a few copies of the scriptures. The leaders had them and the leaders read them. So the stuff that was written was written to be read and heard. It was written to be read out loud. And also some parts of the Bible were either, like I said, oracles and woes and spoken things or verbal traditions that were just spoken and memorized for a while and then finally written down in more formal form later. So especially the Old Testament, the vast majority of what we see was either spoken originally or written to be spoken. And the thing about writing something that will be spoken is you write it different than if you're writing it to be read quietly in somebody's mind by themselves. I deal with this difference every single week in my sermon preparation because I actually... I hope hope I'm not too obvious with it every week, but I manuscript almost every single word of what I say for my sermons. And then I read it a few times, so it's kind of in my mind, that way I'm not looking down the whole time that I'm talking to you guys. And I write differently when I write to be speaking than when I write for somebody to read it, because I will sometimes have to go back and edit what I write, because when I read it, I'm like, okay, well, that's clear when I read it. But then I imagine speaking it, I'm like, "Eh, that's really not clear. (laughs) Or that doesn't come across in the same way or have the same emphasis that I want it to have. So there is there is a real tangible difference in how you write when it's going to be spoken versus when it's somebody who's going to sit down with a copy and can read it a few times. Because you can be a a little less clear when you're writing it, when you know the person can stop and reread it. Well, when you're speaking, you can't like, the audience can't hit pause and rewind And then you keep saying the same thing over and over again. You have to actually do that, which is why stuff that's written to be spoken tends to be more repetitive because we remember better what we hear more. We also remember better stuff that is maybe surprising or different, stuff that breaks the monotony, which is why when you read especially the Old Testament, you have all these vastly different and sometimes really weird genres of scripture. And you're like, why on earth is the material being presented this way that makes no sense to me? Well, first off with that, you have to remember it wasn't written to you. It was written for you. The Bible is for all of us, but it had an original audience. So it was written usually in language they understand, maybe agricultural terms or society terms that were normal to them, but now we're like, what? <laughs> so you do have to do a little research sometimes. Um, but it was written in a way that would catch their attention when they hear it. And sometimes, because of all this, what is helpful to do sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, if you're reading it, just looking at it, reading it, and you're like, I have no idea what's going on. Maybe pause, go back to the beginning, and read it out loud. I was actually amazed how much that helped me when I was reading these chapters in preparation for today, which are chapters 28 through 35. I just took some time and read it out loud, and just trying to imagine how it's spoken, the tone, the passion, whatever that was used, and I'm like, oh, this actually just try to make a lot more sense. Just simply hearing myself say it. And that can be really helpful as you do your Bible study. Um, you will obviously still have to look up certain words. So I'm not going to say it's a magical key that all of a sudden you'll perfectly understand it. There's a lot of words in the Bible that are foreign to us, so you will have to still look up stuff. To show this principle and to do something a little different and break the monotony of me kind of feeling like Isaiah and saying the same message over and over as I summarize all these chapters that we've been looking at, I'm going to do something different today. We are looking at eight chapters, which are a series of six woes that do give a building message, and the themes and message are basically the same exact themes and message that I've been saying these last four weeks now as we looked at the oracles. So what I'm going to do today is I'm actually just going to read the eight chapters. It sounds like that's pretty long, but a lot half of the chapters are actually pretty short. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a little bit of explanation as I go. As I read these chapters, or sorry, as I read these chapters in preparation for today, that's the other thing about writing your manuscript, by the way, is some words in English are pronounced different depending on context. So that's, yeah. So anyways, as I read these chapters, I was amazed how much, like I said earlier, reading it out loud helped me. I hope it has helped you as well. And then also reading it out loud and putting, trying to put some emotion into it really helped me see why Isaiah is called the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. His writing is beautiful. And I want this week to first just take some time and let his writing kind of stand on its own and let it have the impact. Um, there, I, there's going to be some confusion that I'm going to have to clear up as we go. Certain things are worded a little weird and we don't understand them at face value. So I'm going to pause and clear up some stuff as we go. But by and large, there will be large sections that I'm just going to read and let us enjoy it. And I want to take some time to do that. I know I am not a professional actor, I'm not a professional narrator, so I apologize if it is not up to the quality of dramatic narration that you would hope for. Um, but I hope at least a little bit of Isaiah's passion and his beauty in his writing and his presentation comes across. Before we do that, though, I want to briefly introduc- introduce the um, series of six woes that we will be looking at. And if you're wondering why I'm scrolling the whole time, by the way, I'm on a tablet. I don't have my Bible up here because I literally put everything on a document with my notes so that I could just read it all in one flow. But anyways, um, so before I begin to introduce them, um, there are six woes. The first woe in chapter 28 starts with a promise of the destruction of the northern kingdom, but quickly shifts its focus to a promise of the same destruction for the southern kingdom because they are making the same exact choices. And the northern kingdom, remember, is Israel, and the southern kingdom is Judah. Uh, the first few verses were spoken before the fall of the northern tribes of Israel in 722. You can tell that by the wording. It's future tense. Um, the destruction hasn't actually happened yet. And there is a chance that some of the oracle, other oracles and commentators disagree on this. Some people say 28 and 29 especially were maybe all written before the fall of the northern tribes. Um, some people argue that it was just actually like the first six verses or the first 13 verses. There's... You can find any number of opinions for whoever you read. All that to say, it is, I think, likely that most, if not all, except for the first six verses, but like, it's very likely that the first section was purposely old material that he reused to refresh people's memory in a later time. It is very likely that the vast majority of the material we're about to read in these chapters was said closer to 701 when Assyria invaded Jerusalem. But he is bringing back the fall of the northern kingdom to mind in the people's memory and probably more than likely quoting an oracle he had told them at the time and saying, you've made the same choices. This is what happened to the northern tribes. You're doing the same exact thing. This is what's about to happen to you if you don't repent. So I think that's very likely what's happening here. As always with Isaiah, you will notice as we go that even when he is talking about near-term specific events, he cannot help but start to look and blend forward into the future time. You will see the phrase, that day and that day, that generally points forward to the last day. We'll talk a about, about a couple times where there seems to be multiple fulfillments. Um, but it kind of makes you start to wonder what time he's talking about. But this is the point that we've seen already in the oracles many times, and this is the point he's making again and again in all these chapters what he is trying to say through this, through this blending, like, what time are you actually talking about? What he's saying is that the events in the present and the near, free, near future are promises and fulfillments and guarantees that God will bring about what he has promised for the farther future. God's faithfulness today and tomorrow guarantees to us that he is faithful forever. And that is the message that Isaiah is giving again and again and again. That's why all this stuff starts blending together. We will see in these woes the promise that God will deliver Judah from Assyria. But it is also obvious that a greater work of revival is needed. This matches, by the way, the narrative, which is the next few chapters after this section. We'll look next week at chapters 36 to 39, which are a narrative section, and actually explain and document the fulfillment of many things we're about to read in these oracles. It's actually why these oracles are likely placed right before that narrative to kind of lead right into it. Um, But 36 to 39 is actually out of chronological order because you have the siege and attack on Jerusalem, which actually ends with Hezekiah and the people repenting and crying out to God and then God delivering them. And then it goes back in time three years in chapter 39 to when Hezekiah foolishly accepted the Babylonian envoys or ambassadors and basically, if you read between the lines, he's striking up an alliance with them just like his temptation always is. So Isaiah purposely flips chronological order to end it on a note of rejection of God. Because what he's making the point is it's like, well, yeah, the people repented when Assyria siege the city, but that's because they were panicking and the, the true revival really hasn't happened yet. These promises that we're looking for, this real revival that's about to happen, and we'll we'll read a lot in these verses, has not fully come about yet. So there's a purposeful sense of we're still waiting. And then one final note, and I like Caleb did a rant about this in Sunday school as well. As far as translation, uh, one final note, the ESV translates the word for woe or alas as ah, which is, so if you're counting, like, if you're looking for where the six woes are, look for the word ah if you're looking at the ESV. If you're looking at other translations, you will see woe or alas, or some translations try to get more creative and choose other words. I like the sound woe. I know it's more archaic, so I'm sorry, but that's actually what I'll be using as I go. I will be reading the ESV, but I'm just going to change ah to woe because I just like the sound of it better. Um, Whatever word you choose, it doesn't really matter, but the meaning is grief, alarm, sadness, and as we're going to see, a pleading, a begging to Repent is what the meaning of the word is. So, starting in chapter 28, and you can just follow along as I'm reading here. Woe, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, who is Israel, the northern kingdom, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. I'm going to pause here real quick to explain some of the hill imagery because that kind of is important going forward. Samaria, which was the capital city of Israel, was on a beautiful hill, and its cities and walls kind of look like a crown or wreath surrounding the city. So when you read about the crown of the hill, and we're going to read about fading flowers, imagine like a crown or some commentators are thinking the imagery is actually purposely like a wreath that some people would put on their head for like parties and celebrations and stuff. And then as the night goes on and they get kind of intoxicated and they've done partying, the flowers and stuff start fading and falling and it kind of looks a little junked up. Like that's the imagery that's happening here. So behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest. Like a storm of mighty and overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his hand the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In other words, Samaria destroyed quickly by Assyria. It's like somebody in spring who, like, so excited about seeing the new fruit just eats it right away. That will be Assyria. They're going to come and they're just going to snatch and they're going to eat because they're powerful. In that day... And this is Isaiah looking forward to the future, actually, which Isaiah just does this a lot. He goes present, all of a sudden, whoa, he's like way in the future. So in that day, which again, Isaiah looking forward to future restoration, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of the people. In other words, he will be what the city and its leaders failed to be. They were in this city with his, with his walls on this beautiful hill. They were supposed to be a place of peace and security and righteousness and justice. They weren't. They failed. But God will be this for the remnant, for the faithful. And a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who look back to the battle at the gate. He will be the opposite, in other words, of the foolish leaders of Israel. He will be sober. He will be just. He will be strong. And he will be faithful. He will be their defense. And then in 7 through 13, he repeats and explains further what was said in those first four verses about the fall of uh, Israel. So starting in seven, these also, which refers again to the leaders of Israel, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink and they reel in a vision. They stumble in giving judgments. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. In other words, these leaders who are supposed to be guides, The priests and the prophets, supposed to be giving wisdom from God, they are drunk on the pleasures of the flesh. And because of this, their visions and judgments are like that of a drunk man. And and what he's saying at the end there, basically everything that comes out of their mouth is like vomit. They're just filling the table with yuck, with vomit, with worthless words. And then now in 19, most commentators take this as Isaiah quoting them, like putting words in their mouth, mocking Isaiah And he's doing this as an example of the vomit coming out of their mouths. So this is likely the leaders speaking to Isaiah. To whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? Is he teaching babies? Like, what is he saying? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And what, what he's saying, and actually, like, this is a generous interpretation of what's going on in the Hebrew. The words are like half words that like kind of make sense. The precept and the line upon line, like that's like guessing on like what word he's actually meaning. Because basically what we could read in that in the Hebrew is basically blah blah blah, goo goo ga 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 ga. ga. Like that's that's what's going on in the Hebrew. Because basically these these prideful, arrogant, sinful leaders who are supposed to be looking to God, are looking to Isaiah, who's giving them the word of God, and they're like, you're just giving baby talk to us. Like, everything you're saying is so simplistic, it's stupid. We've grown up. We're wise. We have our own wisdom. We don't need this baby talk that you're giving us. So then in response to this, he says, By a people of strange lips, with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, This is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose. That's the message of the Lord. It's an extremely simple message, which is the point. Because they're making fun of him for his his simplistic message. He's saying, God is just calling you to rest, to find your rest and repose in him. Yet they wouldn't hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept, the word of the Lord is going to be to them, blah, 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 gibberish, baby talk. But what he means by that this time is that they will be broken and snared and taken What's actually funny is he he takes that the baby talk concept, and he's like, okay, you, you say I'm talking gibberish. You're about to get gibberish as the word of the Lord, but it's not going to be baby talk gibberish. It's going to be a foreign language that you don't understand, and foreigners who are going to come and invade you. So there's your gibberish. And then he now turns his attention to Judah, to Jerusalem. Because in theory, he's talking to the people of Judah, and they're sitting there like, ah, those foolish northern tribe people. <laughs> And then he turns the tables on them. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. So now he's brought it home to Judah, to Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge. And in falsehood, we have taken shelter. This is obviously not what they were actually saying. Isaiah is mocking them. The context is that the people had just made an alliance with Egypt, who was newly powerful at the time. A a new dynasty had just risen up that was promising to defend and back up and help anybody who was rebelling against the Assyrian Empire, who Egypt was having a beef with at the time, basically wanted to be the, the powerful one, more powerful than Assyria. So obviously this isn't what the people said. They are viewing their covenant as wisdom, as life, as something that will bring them security and safety. And Isaiah looks at and talks directly about their alliance and calls it like it is and says, no, what you've done is you've made an alliance with death and you've made lies your refuge and in falsehood you've taken shelter. And if you look at the history of how Egypt supposedly helped those who actually tried to start rebelling against the Assyrian Empire, a great example is Philistia. The the Philistines tried to rebel against the Assyrian Empire, and when that failed, their leader fled to Egypt, thinking they would help him, and then when the Assyrian Empire showed up, Egypt's like, well, here you go, have him, take him back, you can take him to exile. Like, that was the help that they gave. So that's why Isaiah is saying, you've made lies and falsehood your refuge. You're putting all your trust in something that you can't trust. Therefore, in 16, thus says the Lord God, behold... I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. Think of that contrast. He's saying you have made refuge of lies and a shelter of falsehood. But I, the Lord, God, if you would just put your trust in me, I have laid a tested, sure, and precious cornerstone that has been measured with justice and righteousness. And it is a sure foundation. Here, what he's referring to is the plans and trusting in God rather than in their own plans and all these foreign alliances that they they keep turning to. But we see this language picked up in the New Testament and in Romans and in uh, Peter, and this image, this trust in God, trust in the plans of God is ultimately finding its fulfillment in the cornerstone in Christ. So we see this pulled forward into the New Testament as well. And then as he goes back here, he says at the end of 17, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Remember the sure foundation that God had just talked about? Well, he reminds them of what is going to happen to their foundation. So your foundation that you have chosen, it's not going to stand. And then your covenant with death, your covenant with Egypt is going to be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. This alliance that you're relying on, it's not going to, it's not going to work out for you. It's going to fail you. And then the overwhelming scourge, when it passes through, you will be beaten down by it. Remember that whip that they said they were going to avoid? It's like, no, you've, you've literally not found a way to avoid that with your choices. As often as it passes through, it will take you from morning by morning. It will pass through day by night. It will be sheer terror to understand the message. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm telling you this, and on that day when you are terrified and see the results of your choices, then you'll understand. But you're not understanding right now. You're rejecting me. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself in, and the covering is too narrow to wrap oneself in. You're like, why are we talking about a bed? The bed is the alliance. The covering is the blanket, is the security, is the warmth and the comfort that is supposed to come from this alliance with Egypt he's like yeah go try that bed it's too short and the blanket's too small so good luck (laughs) and then the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused these were two places that God attacked the enemies of the people of God he attacked the Philistines and the Canaanites He will rise up in 21 in the beginning and then now 21 at the end. To do his deed, he will rise up a strange. Strange is his deed. And to work his work, alien is his work. In other words, God's going to do a strange and a foreign thing. And we know from the context what he's going to do is not fight against the enemies of God. He's going to now fight against his own people because they have rejected him. That's why it's a strange and a foreign work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. In other words, he now summarizes it and directly begs and looks to the scoffers and tell them, and tells them, do not scoff lest your bonds be made strong. What he is saying is that the scoffers have already locked in themselves to this destruction because of their mockery of God. And if they don't stop at once, they are going to tie and forge the chain so securely that there is no escaping their fate. From this is the, the context here, it made me think of going forward and looking about one of the tricky questions of scripture, the unpardonable sin. I think this is a picture of what that is. They have put themselves in chains, and through their continued choices they're going to lock in themselves into those chains permanently. because so I think the unpardonable sin And as we see it in scripture, what what happens in the life of Jesus is he is casting out demons and the Pharisees come and tell him that this work that you're doing is the work of Beelzebub, which is basically the work of the devil. And he's just like, you are mocking the work of the Holy Spirit, who is your only hope of salvation. You are committing the unpardonable sin, the sin from which there is no recovery because you're mocking your only means of salvation. So there is no other source of forgiveness and salvation because you're mocking the only way of it so that's what's going on here they are locking themselves in by mocking and rejecting their only means of salvation and then 23 give ear hear my voice give attention hear my speech does he who plows for sowing plow continually Does he continually open and harrow the ground? And we're going to get into some agricultural imagery here. Basically, when you're prepping the ground to plant the seeds, do you keep prepping the ground all season? Like through the whole year, do you keep opening so that you can keep having holes for the seeds? When he has leveled its surface in 29, does he not scatter dill and sow cumin and put in the wheat and the rows and barley in its proper price and emmer in the border? In other words, you don't keep plowing. What you do is you prepare the ground and then you stop preparing the ground. You put the seeds in and then you let them do their thing and you take care of them as they grow. For he, in 26, for he is rightly instructed, for God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he doesn't thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. So this is a lot of stuff that I didn't really understand. I understand some of it more after reading into it. But basically, you don't thresh or harvest or whatever part of the agriculture process you want to look at. You don't treat all crops the same. Because if you do what you do for one crop to a different crop, you're going to destroy it. So that's what he's trying to say here. And then 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The point of all these verses in the agriculture is putting what he's trying to say in words that they would understand, because it's an agricultural society, there's a lot of farmers that he's probably talking to. The point is that true wisdom and counsel comes from God. He knows the right way to do things, the right way to do the right thing, and the right time to do the right thing. And then we get to the second woe. Whoa, Ariel, Ariel. And no, we haven't suddenly dipped into the Little Mermaid. I'm sorry. Um, Ariel <laughs> here is altar hearth. So offering place. And it's specifically using the wordings we're going about to get here. It's altar place, the place of the sacrifice. So oh, places of sacrifices, the city where David encamped. So it's like this grand beginning, the places of sacrifice and worship to God. where David. Remember great David where he encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Now, they keep doing, keep doing your worship. Yet, I will destroy Ariel. I will destroy my places of sacrifices. There shall be moaning and lamentation. The word here is actually she will be moaning and lamentation. Ariel, his place of sacrifice, will be characterized by distress and grief. And she shall be to me. Ariel will be to me. In other words, Jerusalem, my altar hearth, will be my sacrifice. I'm going to come down in judgment on the place that's supposed to be worshiping me, which makes you realize that the end of verse 1, add year to year a feast. Keep keep doing your pointless sacrifices. You've just brought judgment on yourself. Remember in chapters 1 through 5, where he said that these people keep offering me things, but their heart isn't in it? I wish they would stop trampling my courts. Just get out. Like, that's what's going on in these verses here. And three, I will encamp against you. He uses the same word, actually. Like, at first you're like, oh, it's where David dwelled. And then he's like, actually uses the same word, which has multiple meanings. And he says, I will siege. I will dwell in attack on you. I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you. And you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. And from the dust your speech shall whisper. So this call and this warning of judgment. And then the tone turns in the next few verses. After this promised threat of punishment, God will later deliver his people. It says, "...but the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. In an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts, with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of devouring fire." And the multitude of all nations that fight against Ariel, that fight against my place of worship, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating and awakes and his hunger is still not satisfied because he realizes it was a dream. Or when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he is drinking, but when he wakes up, he realizes that his thirst isn't quenched because he was just dreaming. So the multitude of all the nations will be that fight against Mount Zion. In other words, God's deliverance will be so sudden That it's like, it's felt so real, like when when you're in a dream, but then you wake up and it's gone. Like, that's what God's deliverance is going to be. And we're going to read about that next week in chapters 36 to 39. So astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed your eyes, who are the prophets, and closed your heads, which are the seers. In other words, God has withdrawn his hand and his help from the people. Obviously, Isaiah is talking to the people, so God is still calling to them. But what Isaiah knows and was warned about back in chapter 6 is that the people have chosen to reject God, and because of their continual rejection, God has taken his hand off of his people and is no longer helping them. And the vision of all this in 11 has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And then when they give the book to one who cannot read, or sorry, they, they, when they give the book to one who cannot read, he says, and they say, read this. He says, I cannot read. In other words, you hear and you see what I'm saying, but you can't, you won't, you refuse to listen. You refuse to understand. It's like I'm giving you a sealed document that you can't open. And it's like I'm, sa- I'm giving you something you can't read. In other words, God is not helping you anymore. God is no longer opening your eyes to what I'm saying. And the Lord said, in 13, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their heart is far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In other words, remember in one through five, all their worship is fake and just rules that they're following, the thinking that they can manipulate God into giving them what they want. He's saying the fear of me supposed to be a reverence and respect and an awe and worship, a heart attitude and a heart posture towards God. You've turned that, what's supposed to be a characteristic of your heart, into just a rule you follow. I despise that. Therefore, in 14, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. In other words, I will work a new wonder. God likes doing deliverance and judgments and different great acts. He likes doing something new every time. He doesn't like copying and pasting something he's done before. And the wisdom of their wise shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. And now in the middle of the chapter, we get the third woe, uh, which in the, again in the ESV, ah, but woe, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay and the thing that, uh, sorry, and the thing made should say of its maker, did he make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. In other words, you are seeking to reverse things. You seek to be over God. You are despising your maker and basically saying that you are the maker. And 17, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon, which Lebanon is a place of like good forests and lush ground, is sometimes used metaphorically to refer to the land of Judah and Israel. So until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field will be regarded as a forest in that day, in that day, the deaf shall hear. And the words of this book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see this likely refers to the deafness and the blindness of the people that was just talked about, and saying, one day this will be reversed: the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the holy one of Israel, for the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out of an offender or make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him." Who reproves at the gate, and an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. In other words, the foolish leaders of Judah had things reversed, but one day God will reverse their reversal and set things right. And then the next few verses continue to talk about this final reversal when God comes and makes things right. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob Jacob shall no more be ashamed no more shall his face grow pale for when he sees his children the work of my hands in the midst they will sanctify my name they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel and those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction and now we get to the, the fourth woe which is back to the present problem so just talked about like well, this future work of reversal is going to happen but unfortunately now we got to keep talking about the present problem that you all are having so woe Stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they add sin on sin. In other words, you made it in a foolish alliance and you didn't even ask for me about about my guidance in this. You did something foolish, and the other thing you did foolish was you didn't never even ask me. You're adding sin on sin. Who set out to go to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt? Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan, and his envoys retains, and these are two central and powerful Egyptian cities. Everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. And then we get an oracle against the beast of Negab. We're like, Where is this coming from? The Negev is the land south of Judah and you would have had to travel through it to get to Egypt. So basically the path of the envoys trying to get the alliance with Egypt and seal it up. Through a land of trouble and anguish from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and treasures to the on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. And this is the envoys bringing riches, basically bringing a bribe and a payment price for Egypt to help them. They bring it to a people who can't profit them. Egypt's help, help, sorry, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. No, this is not the Rahab who helped the spies. Um, Rahab is also a word that refers to a mythological sea serpent or dragon. In other words, this is a way of referring to Egypt. It's like, you think of Egypt as this big powerful dragon and sea serpent. Well, she's a Rahab who sits still. In other words, this is a big powerful serpent that does nothing. And that's where you're going for your help. And now, go, in verse 8, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for time to come as a witness forever, for they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more of this Holy One of Israel. Hmm, 12. Therefore, thus says, the Holy One of Israel, the one that they just said they didn't want to hear from. He speaks and he says, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of a cistern. There isn't even a big enough piece that has enough curve in it to get water. Remember how they had just tried to flip the script and say that they were the potter and not the clay? Look what he just said about them as the clay that's about to happen. The script has not been flipped. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness, and in trust shall be your strength. Again, every time we see this breaking in of the message from God, it is simple. It is childish. Just rest. Trust. Stop going to these other things that you're looking to. Trust in me. But you, you were unwilling. And you said, no, we'll flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. We will ride on swift steeds, therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. One of the main reasons they turned to Egypt is that Egypt was known for having a lot of horses and chariots, which Judah did not. And basically what's being said is, we, we will find our security in the cavalry of Egypt." And God says, "Nope, you're not going to get that, and the Assyrian Empire is going to have their own horses that they attack you with." A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. In other words, like a lonely little flagpole or banner on a hill with no army around it anymore. Therefore, in 18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. In other words, due to their rejection, God is delaying his grace until he is able to demonstrate it in a way that makes obvious that they are to work or look to him and exalt him and in a way that will prove his worthiness to be trusted. Because of their rejection, he is delaying his grace in order to use it and show it at a time where it will give a very clear message to them. For the Lord of, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. And then these next few verses explain the concept of God waiting to show grace and mercy. It says in 19, for a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you remember how we had just read about their eyes and their ears being blinded and not receiving the message well now they are opened finally and they will hear the teacher saying this is the way walk in it it's it's the picture of a gentle teacher just behind you kind of prompting and guiding you saying this way come on this way and when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left um Sorry, that, that refers back to the teaching. There. So, like, this is the way walking. In other words, like, when you're starting to get off course, the teacher's just kind of gently behind you, like, nope, nope, this way. Come on, over here. And then in 22, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things and you will say to them, be gone. There will be full repentance and full scrapping away of all the idols. So, the summary of these verses, though he brings affliction and discipline now, He stands ready and will be gracious to you once you turn back to him. When you are finally willing to see and listen and cast aside your false gods, he will listen to you and guide you. And then 23, he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread and produce and the produce of the ground with which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with a shovel and a fork. And every lofty mountain and every high hill. These are places, by the way, that would have been sites of false worship. We read so many times in scripture that people were using every high high hill and even like the little ones. They basically they found every place they could to set up a, a, an altar to a false god. In all these places, these places will become brooks running with water in the day of great slaughter when the towers fall moreover the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the lord binds up the brokenness of the people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow in other words when god brings this act of mercy and grace and forgiveness when the people turn back to him he will provide in all these places that the people were worshiping false gods he will provide the things that the false gods promised And could not supply. That's the picture of this imagery here that on every hill there's a river, even the tallest hills, which if you know geography, like, he's basically kind of like stretching how things work. And he's like, the sun and the moon are going to be like super bright. In other words, like, these blessings, this sunshine, this fertile ground, this everything you've been looking for from these gods that you keep turning to will come from me. When you finally cast them down and stop worshiping them, I will bless you. And then how will this happen? Starts in 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger in a thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and place... And to the place on the jaws of the people, a bridle that leads away. Remember how in chapter eight, God had told Ahaz that because of his rejection and his alliance with Assyria, that Assyria was going to turn on him and become like a flood that reaches up to the neck of Judah. Well, God now flips that imagery and says, well, yeah, that's going to happen because I need to discipline you and to judge you for what you've done. But then once I've brought the proper amount of judgment and discipline on you and you finally turn back to me, I'm going to flip that flood on them and bring it up to their Neck. And then at twenty-nine, you shall have a song in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart as one who sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard, and the descending blow of his arm to be seen, in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire, with a cloud burst and a storm and hailstones. In other words, you're gonna know that God is acting. <laughs> The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod, and every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be the sound of tabarines and lyres. Battling with brandish arm, he will fight with them. The point of all this imagery is, again, the obvious nature of the work of the Lord. Every blow that happens is going to have, like, this sound of instruments being played. In other words, you're going to hear, you're going to know, you're going to see that God is active and delivering you. For a burning place has been long prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready, the king of Assyria, its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like the stream of sulfur, kindles it. So then in 31, the next woe, the fifth woe, which the ESV actually uses the word woe here suddenly, um, we flip back and kind of change focus a little bit. And I think a way to transition here, the thought, is like in light of this deliverance that's going to happen, in light of all this, woe, to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his word, but he will arise against the house of evildoers, which is actually Judah, and against the helpers, Egypt, and those who work iniquity, Judah. The Egyptians are man. And not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. In other words, what he's making the point here: Why are you looking to human help when you could look to God? You're looking to flesh and bones when you have the power of God available to you. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper who is Egypt will stumble. In other words, Egypt's help won't come; he'll stumble on the way, which is exactly what happened. Egypt didn't help Judah, and then he who has helped Judah, and the help there would probably be better like he who has helped Judah will fall. And they will all perish together. Judah was besieged by Assyria, um, but then God delivered them, and we'll get that later. Um, Egypt was also besieged later and punished for their shenanigans that they were causing for the Assyrian Empire. So, like this, this all comes true. And then in four, for thus the Lord said to me. As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shoutings or daunted by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem and he will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue. In other words, when Egypt abandons and fails you, God will not. He may bring discipline on you, but he is also a lion that protects you and he flies around you like birds protecting their nests to protect his own. So, starting in verse 6, turn to him from people who have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. Again, like that is the message of the Lord. Turn to him. A simple, a simple childish message. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And then I think a transitional thought here. When you repent, and we will see this in chapter 37, that Hezekiah asks Isaiah to intercede for him and the people when the Assyrian army is besieging the city. So when you repent, starting in 8, the Assyrian shall fall by the sword, not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young man shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror. And his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, who is the fire of Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Remember how he said that I will make them a sacrifice and burn them? Well, now once that act of discipline is done and they turn back to him and repent, that fire rages out against the Assyrian Empire. And then these next few verses in chapter 32 give what could happen if the king, the leaders, and the people actually look to God and ultimately this points to Christ who is the righteous and just king who will establish a perfect government in one day. Or sorry, in that day. Uh, In 32, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, and like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue that stammers will hasten and speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, and the scoundrel will will, um, not be said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the cravings of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. So often in Isaiah you see the rejection of God paired and evidenced, shown through an abuse of power and a persecution of those who have a lesser status in society than you. It shows a complete rejection and the complete opposite of God's heart, who God defends and looks to the poor and needy and upholds the cause of those who seek justice. But the leaders of the people have completely gone opposite of this and have the opposite of God's heart. And then the the call to repent now extends from the leaders, who have been primarily the focus in pretty much everything we've read so far, um, extends from the leaders down to the people. It starts by addressing the women, but you can't read this and be like, oh, it's just all the women's fault. Like, it very quickly transitions to all the people. It just starts with the women and then quickly goes to the whole city. So, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, which, again, makes most commentators think that a lot of this stuff was given about 703, 702, because the siege of Assyria was just within the next year. In a little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. In other words, mourn. Repent. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest." In other words, this reversal and restoration is only accomplished through the outpouring of God's spirit. And this is echoed in Joel 2 and is also picked up in Pentecost. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effects of righteousness righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust. Many people will abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And then these last two verses in 19 and 20, the last two verses summarize what was just said. Basically saying, Jerusalem will face judgment, but after repentance and the work of the spirit, there will be peace in abundance. So 19 and 20 say, it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid waste. So, or laid low. Like, Jerusalem will face punishment. But happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. The range-free means that there is so much plentiful crop and grass and whatever the livestock wants to feed on, that you can just let them range wherever they want. And there's also no threat, because there's no animals that you have to protect them from. You just go, just just eat. I don't need to worry about you. No lions or anything are going to get you. And then in 33, the sixth woe, the final woe, you destroyer, which refers to Assyria, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none have betrayed, When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. In other words, after Assyria serves God's purpose of judgment on his people, he will bring judgment on them. And the wording also seems to look forward to when Assyria is overthrown. And then in verse 2, the people repent and turn to God in their distress, likely at the siege of the Assyrian Empire. And This is them talking. It says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning and our salvation at the time of troubles. At the tumultuous noise, people flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered and your spoil is gathered. As the caterpillar gathers, as locusts sleep, it is left upon. And then Isaiah promises that God will act in deliverance in the next couple verses. It says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high, he fills Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance and salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. And then what was summarized in these first few verses is now expanded further in the rest of the chapter, starting with the great distress of the people at the siege. Because again, I said that probably two and three and four are like the cry of the people. Now we're going to read a more extended cry of the people this distress at the siege of the Assyrian Empire. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. In other words, the warriors are terrified. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The envoys of Judah to Egypt have realized that Egypt is not going to help them. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. This is probably a double double meaning here. Egypt's promise to help has been broken. And also, if you read over, and I think it's King's, Hezekiah, when he realized Egypt wasn't going to help, he sends his tribute to Assyria saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, here it is, take it, I'll pay it. And then Assyria still comes to attack him. Because that's kind of just the the nature of the Assyrian empire. If you're showing rebellion, even if you supposedly recant and give them back money, they're still going to usually come to you to make a point that you better not do that again. So these covenants are broken here. And then cities are despised. There is no regard for men. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashem and Carmel shake off their leaves. And then God hears the distress of the people in the next few verses. Now I will arise. Now I will lift myself up. And now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the people's will be as if burned by lime. Like thorns cut down, they are burned in the fire. In other words, now I will rise. Your plans, look how they've worked out. Your plans are worthless and have only led to your destruction. Here, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell on the consuming fire? This word is the similar word to altar hearth. The idea being who can stand before God? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? In other words, I think what's happening here is the people are having their chapter 6 moment. Isaiah, when he saw God and saw his need for God, said, Woe is me. I am undone. I'm about to die. And he had to be purged with one of the um, seraphim bringing The coal from the altar. And the people are like, we can't stand, like who's, we we want to cry out to God, but we don't, we, we aren't worthy to go meet with Him and ask for His help. He who walks righteously, so they're saying, who can, who can go? The answer, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who de- despises the, grain, the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of the rocks. His bread will be given to him. And his water will be sure. In other words, you're asking who can come talk to me? Whoever has my heart can dwell with me. Change your hearts. Repent. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty, like Isaiah saw the king in chapter six. They will see the king. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your eyes, your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? This is all like questions like where did Assyria go? They're just gone. Like God acted, and now all of a sudden they're gone. You will see no more the insolent people, the people of the obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Remember that threat about all the gibberish baby talk that was going to happen with the discipline being brought by the foreign invader? Is it now it's gone. Behold, 20, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up nor any of its cords be broken, but there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley or oars can go, nor majestic ships can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king. He will save us. If you follow the wording there and look back to seven to nine, the destruction and fear of seven to nine is reversed as the deliverance from the Lord's come, the, the deliverance from the Lord comes and he makes the city as if no galley, no majestic ship, no invader, no invading army can conquer it. And then 23, your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. In other words, it's this—it's the vision of like a derelict broken down ship. Remember how he just said like no invading ship, no glorious galley or anything can, can come conquer this city when I act? Well, you're a broken down ship, but the prey and the spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take his prey. In other words, you're a broken down ship, but you will take this enemy prey through what I do for you no inhabitant will say i am sick the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity when you repent and god forgives and delivers you you will take the spoil of the assyrians and then this deliverance from assyria and the judgment on them transitions into god's judgment against all nations which is just exactly like isaiah so in th- 34 Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the, let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, to give them over to their slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise, and the mountains shall flow with their blood all the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll and all their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. The host of heaven likely refers to the gods of the other nations to say that God will bring judgment and cast down all who stand against him and all the gods that they worship. And then in five, for my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment on Edom upon the people I have devoted to destruction. This is actually bringing back to Genesis to the family line, Edom came from Esau, who was the brother of Jacob. The descendants of Jacob are God's people. So what is going on here through the imagery, Edom represents those opposed to God. The Lord has a sword in six. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of kidneys of of rams. The sword is filled with the offerings, in other words, made by his people. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, which is the capital of Edom, and then a great slaughter in the land of Edom. In other words, the sacrifice is the judgment of those who opposed him. Um, his people, we saw in 29:2, were a sacrifice as part of his discipline of them, but now the enemies of God are the sacrifice in his judgment. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil will be gorged with fat. It's all sacrificial imagery. Basically, like the earth is accepting the sacrifice. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, and the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. The destruction, in other words, that will come to Edom to those who oppose God is put in terms of Sodom and Gomorrah and in terms of the lake of fire. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. This goes back to the imagery, by the way, of um, the city, the great city from all the oracles that we talked about earlier, about how the city, the city of man, those who oppose God, will be overthrown and destroyed. And then their great city that they thought would last forever gets turned over to the plants and the animals, no longer inhabited by any people. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch a line of confusion over it, the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in a fortress. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode of ostriches. The wild animals shall meet with hyenas, and the wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there is a night bird settles and finds herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadows. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one to her mate. It's a lot of words about a lot of different animals to basically just cement and continue to make the point that this city is gone. It's just animals that are there now. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these things shall be missing. In other words, God's words and promises will come true. None shall be without her mate. Going back to the animals. Um, For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and the spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them and his hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. For generation and generation, they shall dwell on it. In other words, that city will be overturned. The generation and generation, the perpetuity, the foreverness that they thought they had accomplished through their own might, You know who the generation and generation and that foreverness are going to? The animals, not you. So in 35, the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. The judgment... And destruction that God brought to his people and the land will be completely reversed when they see and dwell with God. He has shifted from the judgment of the nations to the blessing to his people. And three, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. In other words, one day God will judge all who oppose him and reward his people. One day all wrongs will be righted. And then we have transition in five. In other words, like when this happens or on this day, five, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. This sounds a lot like the words of Jesus. When the disciples of John asked him, are you the Messiah? Jesus said he did these things as a fulfillment and a sign that he was the Messiah. We think a lot of this stuff as end-time stuff, but he showed in his life that his work of the Messiah gave and continues to give a foretaste or a sampling of what will be one day for eternity. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water In the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. This is the exact opposite. If you go and look back up, this is the exact opposite of the fate of what we read of Edom. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. In chapter 33, after the people had looked to the alliance to Egypt, as part of God's judgment, we read that the highways lie waste. We read here, the highways shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. This might be why Jesus, by the way, uses the way, in the Gospels, just throw that out there. Um, Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. In other words, all who walk on it will be holy and it will be easy to follow. Remember that imagery of the teacher behind you and you start to go astray? It's like, no, 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 this way. Come on, get back on the path. Like that's that's coming back here. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. There will be no more threats. They shall not They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In other words, the redeemed, those of faith, will come home and be home with God forever. They will have everlasting joy. Sorrow and sighing will be no more. How opposite is is this of the fate of those who go to Egypt? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for every book in your word. I thank you for the beauty of your word through Isaiah. I thank you for the simplicity of your message. As childish as it might sound to us, as much as we feel like we have become worldly wise in certain areas and your advice doesn't seem like wisdom to us anymore, I pray that our hearts don't become foolish foolish like so often your people in the past have become. The leaders of this time were just one example of so many times in the history of your people where we have heard your words and thought it was just baby talk that we didn't need to listen to. It's just gibberish. I pray that we would listen, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would not go to whatever Egypt is for us, but that we would look to you, trust in you, and rest in you. Amen.